It's been a great privilege to join you here. I've never, I had never met uh, Leonce before. This, this is my first time. I had heard of him, but now I've met him, and I've discovered that he is, in fact, uh, a multitasker. He can take notes and say amen at the same time. <laughs> We're turning to a dark subject, persecution. Sometimes there are myths surrounding persecution. It can be romanticized. Persecution is always hard. And it can be the cause for great fruit and great joy. Let us bow in prayer and then we'll read together the word of God. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, who suffered on our behalf, such that we join the Apostle Paul in praying, Oh, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable to his death. In Jesus' name, Amen. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 12 to 19. Verse 12 to the end of the chapter, 1 Peter 4. This is what Holy Scripture says. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is the word of the Lord. Until very recent times, in much of the Western world, persecution has been seen as something that happens over there wherever there is, not here, over there. Here we have the First Amendment. We hide behind that. We have a free press. They have totalitarian regimes. We have freedom of religion. So we can curl up and read Fox's Book of Martyrs in 
wide-eyed wonder in the comfort of our air-conditioned houses before slipping out to go surfing. But this is beginning to change. In the name of tolerance, Christian groups in this state have been expelled from some of our campuses. In the name of tolerance, you understand. Doctors who in the past have lived and died under the Hippocratic Oath a bare half-generation ago are now sometimes warned to get out of medicine if their Christian convictions forbid them from, for, from performing abortions. There is such a loss of respect for Christian thinkers, for Christian pastors, that today it's assumed you're a right-wing ignoramus twit if you're some sort of Christian minister. And in some parts of the country, oh, I know there's still the buckle on the Bible belt down in Tulsa. And I know it's a broken belt and a broken buckle, but it's still there. In some parts of the country, evangelical roughly means Protestant jihadist. I kid you not. It is not impossible that within my lifetime, and my lifetime, what's left of it, is going to be a lot shorter than most of yours. It is not impossible that within my lifetime some Christian leaders will go to jail in this country charged with hate crimes because they simply repeat what the Bible teaches. I was brought up in French Canada. And most Americans don't know that much about English Canada, let alone French Canada. In a population of between six and six and a half million people, in the 1930s, there were maybe half a dozen French-speaking evangelical churches. That's it. The Catholic Church at the time was positively medieval in its theology and outlook. My father and a man from Switzerland were the two back into the province again. There had been about 70 evangelical churches and they all died in liberalism for one reason or another. It's a complex history. They were the first back in in the 1930s. But as recently as 1972, the total number of French-speaking churches in a population of 6.5 million was 36, 35 or 36. Average numbers on a Sunday morning, about 70. Uh, about 50, rather, 40 to 50. Between 1950 and 1952, when I was just a little gaffer, Baptist ministers alone spent a total of eight years in jail. And we kids, their children, were not infrequently beaten up as maudits protestants, damned Protestants. This in a country, in the Western world, protected by a free press and all kinds of civil constraints. Well, that's all right, you say. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's an easy slogan when it's not our blood that's being shed. And in any case, it isn't always true. Sometimes it's gloriously true. It's been true in China, for example. Spectacularly true. 
It was true in Ethiopia after the influence of Selassie. It's true today in Iran. There are about 60 million Iranians and about one in 60 today are Christians. A million. And the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That doesn't make it easy for the families of the martyrs. But it wasn't true in Albania. There the persecution was so severe that the church was quite literally wiped off the face of the map. There just weren't Christians that we know about left. So with the fall of communism, it was necessary to start all over again. And whereas the church is growing in Iran, underground, in Saudi Arabia, it's so systematically crushed that there are no legitimate churches, even underground churches, anywhere. Do you see, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church when the opposition, when the persecution, when the suffering comes in waves and then backs off for a bit. And the, the suffering sort of purifies the church, get rid of, gets rid of nominal people and, and makes people decide whose side they're finally on. And, and then the suffering backs off just a wee bit and there's room for expansion and testimony and growth and then there's another wave. In, in that case, it's, it's not uncommonly true. The blood of the martyrs serves as the seed of the church. But where the persecution and violence are unrelenting, absolutely ruthless, the church in any particular area can be wiped out. As recently as 1972, in a population of Turkey of about uh, 60 million or so, there were only... 35 known evangelicals and half of them had got converted in Bible studies at Tyndale House in Cambridge amongst graduate students. Today there are something 3,500 or 4,000 evangelical Christians, something of that order in Turkey. But today, because there are rising pressures in the Western world, We've come to the place where we need to gain some biblical perspectives on the relationship between persecution and the blessing of God. Few passages will help us more than this one. The text itself makes six points. Number one, persecution should never come as a surprise to Christians. It should never come as a surprise to Christians. Verse 12, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Of course, there's a sense in which this general axiom, don't be surprised, is applicable to something broader than to mere persecution. It's applicable to sin. Persecution is one sub-branch of sin. We shouldn't be surprised by sin. If you take what the Bible says seriously about sin, then although sin should constantly horrify us, it should never surprise us. The trouble is that we human beings have a spectacular propensity for thinking that we're better than we are and that the world's not such a bad place after all. So, for example, at the end of 
the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, there was a, a great deal of positive, hopeful, outward-looking hope. After all, science was transforming the world. Poverty was gradually being erased. Maybe we could get rid of war. Trade was wonderful. Maybe by education and missionary endeavor, the world would get better and better. There was a lot of post-millennialism around. The gospel is triumphing. It is advancing. Western culture, gospel, prosperity, capitalism, all sort of rolled together in one glorious package, and then World War I. That most stupid of wars. Begun because of a network of ridiculous alliances. Nobody prepared to back down and lose face. So instead they set up machine guns and howitzers and 88s and lob shells back at each other and mow people down as they come across the lines. Ten million young men killed by being mowed down. Seventeen million killed in terms of lay people, civilians and, and military types. Well, at least, as they called it, it was the war to end wars. We've learned our lesson this time. Things are getting better. And a bare 20 years later, World War II. But at least this time, we've set up something much better than the League of Nations. We've set up the United Nations. That'll fix it. And then the Cold War. Well, Korea. Then the Cold War. Then Vietnam. And then, you see, we have an author, a Japanese... American author by the name of Fukuyama who writes when the Berlin Wall comes down the end of history. Well, he didn't mean that history is literally at the end but that history up to now has been really a history of wars and struggles and confrontation and, and empires and so on. But now with the wall coming down we're all going to become wonderful liberal democrats small d and peace will be at hand and history as we know it well there might be some skirmishes for 300 years but, but basically we've come to the end of history. And then 9-11. And probably the rise of the Russian bear. And ISIS, or ISIS, or ISIL, or IS, or whatever you're calling it this month. And every time there are loads and loads of people who think, we can just talk this out. If we just all get in a room and be civilized and polite to each other, we can resolve these things. That's a long way removed from this perspective. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that's just sin generically. Then you come to the particular sins known as persecution. I'll be listing a long list of verses in a little while, but Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when men revile you, insult you, and say all manner of evil against you for my sake and the gospel's. Rejoice, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, Jesus is aware of a, an historical pattern of these things. Extra-biblical studies say that the great prophet Isaiah at the age of 80 or so, ran away from Manasseh's troops and hid in the hollow of an old tree. They found him, put ropes around the tree so that he couldn't get out and then cut down the tree. You can read how Jeremiah ends pretty miserably down in Egypt after he's been betrayed by his own people again and again and again. Persecution should never come as a surprise to Christians. Sin and persecution should always horrify us, but never surprise us. Number two, persecution should always come as a cause of rejoicing for Christians. Verses 13 and 14. This is simply amazing. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let me remind you of a few New Testament texts along these lines. Philippians 1.29 it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on his name but also to suffer for his sake. Isn't that spectacular? It has been granted to you. It means it's been given to you as a grace gift. What has been given to you? Two things. Number one, saving faith. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on his name but also to suffer for his sake. That's been granted to you too. What a privilege Or Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in Christ's afflictions. It is as if Christ's body, the church, must still face its due in suffering, and Paul wants to take an outsized share so that others won't have to fill up the quota, as it were. What an attitude. Romans 5.3, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now this does not say we rejoice in our sufferings because deep down we're crypto-masochists. No, it's because we perceive that suffering produces character, and character produces expectation, hope. Anticipation of the end. And that's a jolly good thing. Or in Paul's day, he could write in his last letter, 2 Timothy 3.12, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, he's not speaking this as a kind of abstract axiom that is always true at all times, in all places, in every culture. He's talking about the situation of Christians in the first century in the time of Nero. 
Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, there has been a time in the Western world when in many pockets there has been enough of Judeo-Christian heritage that Christians, far from being persecuted, could be fated and, and held up as models. But increasingly, as the world runs in another direction, then this verse from 2 Timothy chapter 3 is going to become axiomatic in our world too. If you live a life of integrity, if you think sexual purity is a good thing, if you think that porn is a bad thing, if you think that sneering condescension is a bad thing, if you think that self-denial is a good thing, then you'll be persecuted. Maybe not with a kind of persecution that puts you in jail, but certainly with sneering insult and condescension dismi condescending dismissal and, and raw contempt. So hear what this text says again. Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Remind yourself of what Romans 8:17 says. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. You see, the idea is union with Christ. We're so identified with him that if he's an heir, then we're identified with him, we're heirs too. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Our union with Christ is focused not only on union with him in his death and resurrection. That's the point of Romans chapter 6. Our union with Christ identifies with him in his death and resurrection. His death becomes ours. Our sin becomes his. It's what theologians have always called the great exchange. And in his resurrection, his life actually becomes ours. That's why Ephesians can speak of us being raised with him also in the heavenly places. Do you, do you see? But our union with Christ is not only with him in his death and resurrection, but also with the entire pattern of his life. Which is what makes sense of what Jesus says in John 15 and 16. If they hated me, they'll hate you. If they obeyed me, they'll obey you. If they tried to kill me, they'll try to kill you. That's what Romans 8, 17 says. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, our union with him must be as coextensive as his life. And of course, you find a similar notion a little earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now that's not all that the cross of Christ is about. It's more than an example after all. In some ways it's unique. It is unique substitution. But it is also an example because of our union with Christ. We identify with him. He did it, at least in part, as an example that we should follow in his steps. That's what the text says. Which is why the Apostle Paul can say in Philippians chapter 3, in the passage I quoted in the prayer, Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. 
being made conformable to his death. But rejoicing in this suffering? Yes, rejoicing, you see, for the sheer privilege of being identified with Christ. Paul's going to develop, Peter's going to develop that a little more in, in a few more verses. But the first place that we see that in the New Testament is Acts chapter 5, verse 41. It's a remarkable passage. In chapter 4, there's some pressure. We saw that under Leonce's sermon this morning. But it's not till chapter 5 that Peter and John get beaten up for the first time. The text says, Acts 5.41, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Isn't that amazing? You have to imagine certain conversations that Peter and John have been having. A few weeks earlier, a few months earlier. John, uh, are you quite sure we're doing this quite right? John says, uh, Peter, what, what are you talking about? Well, on the night that the master was betrayed by us, when I swore I didn't know him, to my eternal shame, on the night that he was betrayed, he told us that if people insulted him, they'd insult us. If people were after him, they'd be after us. But quite frankly, we're pretty popular on the streets of Jerusalem. You know? Nobody's trying to crucify us. We're okay. In fact, for thousands of people, we're heroes. What, what are we doing wrong? Hmm? John says, well, listen, this is a time of revival. It's a, it's a time of blessing. Uh, persecution might come another occasion, but, but right now, listen, people are getting converted by their thousands, indeed by their tens of thousands, and the gospel is spreading to other communities. This is terrific, and you're complaining? No, 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 I'm not complaining. I'm just asking the question, are we doing something wrong? John says, keep doing it. Whatever it is, the people are getting converted. Peter says, listen, I go down the street and there are some people who pop off the sidewalk just to get under my shadow. Now, I know that's ridiculous superstition, but it is some indication of the pretty high odor in which we're, we're held. You, you know, where, where, where are the insults? Where, where's the persecution? And then they get beaten up. And they say, yes, it's about time. Did you see? They counted themselves worthy. They were counted worthy by God. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Now suppose, if every time in North America we get a little of the pushback that we sometimes get, it's not really all that serious, not yet, but every time we face a little pushback, or if things get worse, if some, some have to end up in jail or get leaned on by the IRS, or who knows what pressures will be brought to bear. If every time it happens, instead of whining and complaining, this isn't the America that I was brought up in. Bunch of left-wing idiots. If every time, instead, Christians took the attitude, thank you, Jesus, what a privilege to suffer for you. Every time. What would it do in the transformation of Christian witness? The truth of the matter is you cannot win people to Christ whom you do not love. And you cannot win anyone to Christ when you're whining. 
Christianity, as expressed by whiners, is not attractive. It's ugly. While you're trying to keep out all those Muslims, who's going to win the Muslim to Christ? When you're mean about homosexuals, who's going to win the homosexual to Christ? When you don't like people of another race because they smell different, who's going to win them to Christ? You only win the people you love. And you only win anyone when you're full of the joy of the Lord. The apostles rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. It's as if they were saying, we finally made it. We're ugly enough to the surrounding culture that somebody's beating us up. It's about time. That's what they did to Jesus. Why shouldn't they do it to us? Persecution should never come as a surprise to Christians, number one. Persecution should always come as a cause of rejoicing for Christians. Number three. Persecution should never come to us as the result of evil done by Christians. Verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Well, the first part is patently obvious. Suffering because you've hijacked a car, because you've raped somebody, or because you've bopped a policeman on the head or robbed a bank is, 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 is not the kind of suffering that is being commended here. But there are forms of suffering that are not so legally and socially deviant that are highly acceptable in our world, but which are equally condemnable by God. For example, judgmentalism. Oh, we, ha we are called to be discerning, to be, to, to be wise, to, to, to tell the difference between good and evil. But there is a way of maintaining Christian moral integrity that sounds angry all the time. And, and we want to develop a kind of in-your-face antagonism to the powers that be. This is small potatoes compared with some friends of mine in some parts of the world. My ministry through Trinity, because it's an international seminary, we have graduates in about 120 countries and through the gospel coalition which is flourishing everywhere because it's nowadays a digital world my ministry has got, brought me to every continent in the last year usually more than once except Antarctica I've not yet started to preach to penguins <laughs> I've got to know an awful lot of brothers and sisters in Christ in a lot of places Let me tell you about an Iranian brother I met. He's out of the country now. But he and his wife had both been beaten up, arrested, interrogated separately, not knowing what was happening to the other one for about three months, and they were both released. They were part of the underground church. Then they discovered their names were on an arrest list again. They had been changing places to live, sleeping in different places, leaders in the underground church. They knew they were on an arrest list again. One day this brother was driving his car. When the police car came up behind him with the lights, he pulled over, rolled down his window, figured this was it. The 
policeman said, I've stopped you because you got a taillight out. <laughs> to be caught up for a taillight? He said, I'd like to see your license and registration. My friend thought quickly and said, if he sees my license, he'll know my name. I know I'm on the list, I'll get arrested, and I'm back to interrogation. So he lied. He said, I'm sorry, officer, it's my fault, but I left my registration at home. I, I forgot it. I changed my trousers and forgot to change what was in the other set of pockets. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And he gave a false name. The policeman said, well, it's just a taillight. I'll let you go this time, but I want you to come down to the station tomorrow with your registration and license to prove that you are who you say you are. Thank you, officer. I'll be glad to do that. And he drove away. He was so stricken in conscience by what he had done that he drove around the block and came up behind the policeman who was still parked there, got out of the car, carrying something under his arm, went up to the policeman, knocked on the window. The policeman rolled down the window. He said, Officer, I have to apologize. I lied to you. I told you I didn't have my registration and license. That's because I was afraid. I know I'm on your wanted list. I've been interrogated by the police before. You see, I'm, I'm a Christian. Christians don't lie. We tell the truth. I apologize. I know you have to arrest me, but before you arrest me, I'd like to give you my most precious possession. And he handed him his Bible. policeman took the Bible and he said, you're giving this to me? I've wanted one of these for such a long time. Can't find it anywhere. This, 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 this is terrific. How, how does it work? Where do I start to read it? And he spent half an hour by the policeman's window explaining the gospel and how to read the Bible. And the policeman said, go on, get out of here. And he drove off. Now, you see, if he had just lied and then eventually it got picked up, then they could have charged him with lying to a policeman, driving without a license, evading arrest. But this brother decided if he was going to be arrested, let it be for the gospel's sake and not for doing something that is actually not right. What does the Word of God say? If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, or more generally, even as a meddler. Somebody's mucking around in affairs that don't belong to them. Persecution should never come to us as the result of evil done by Christians. Number four, persecution always comes as a privilege for Christians. Verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Now, initially, this text is hugely counterintuitive. Praise God for the privilege? I mean, 
give me a break. Until you meditate on the last half of verse 16. Praise God that you bear that name. This is not saying rejoice because you're getting bloodied, but because you bear the name. It's not saying praise God because you're being persecuted. It's saying you bear the name and therefore you're persecuted. And you praise God because you bear the name. This notion of bearing the name, being Christ's, is understood in a variety of different ways in the New Testament. But it speaks to the sheer privilege of being a Christian. Such a spectacular privilege, past calculation, that if it means getting bloodied, it's got to be seen as a privilege. There's a wonderful passage, of course, in Luke 10. The language is a bit different, but the thought is quite similar. You recall the context of Luke 10 when 70 or 72 are sent out in a kind of trainee mission and they're given power to cast out demons and to preach the kingdom and to heal the sick and they're given specific directions about what to bring and what not to bring and so on. And they come back and they're full of joy at the the gospel power that they've experienced in their own lives. Even the demons were subject to you, to us in your name, they tell Jesus. And Jesus says, do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. In other words, in simplest language, don't be happy because you're powerful in ministry. Be happy because you're a Christian. Most of us in this room will be familiar with the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the premier English-language preachers of the 20th century. According to his biographer, whose name was mentioned a little earlier by the pastor of this church, Ian Murray, in an account not in the book, but that Ian told some of us as his friends, A few months before the doctor, as Lloyd-Jones was always called, died of cancer. He was so weak that it took all of his energy to get out of bed and put on his three-piece suit, which he always did, and sit in a chair and edit a manuscript for an hour or two before he went back to bed. Murray asked him, how are you coping emotionally now that you've, you've been set on the shelf? You've been used to preaching to thousands, to tens of thousands. You've seen many, many thousands converted on your ministry. You, two or three scores of books already published and more on the way. And You've been in, instrumental with others in reconstituting British InterVarsity, UCCF, after World War II and helping to set up Tyndale House and starting the Puritan Conference and starting the Westminster Conference and You've become a model for expository preaching to an entire generation. You've been instrumental in getting Banner of Truth Trust started and all of its publishing ventures. And and, and now, quite frankly, it takes all of your energy to get out of bed and put on your suit and edit a manuscript and then climb back into bed. How are you coping with that? Lloyd-Jones said, Do not rejoice because the demons are subject to you in my name. 
but rejoice because your name is written in heaven. I am perfectly content. Do you see the perfect slayer of ministerial jealousy? The perfect slayer of all attempts at finding our self-identity in our ministry. And the perfect slayer of resentment when we're persecuted is in every case the same thing. The spectacular recognition of the unimaginably great privilege that is ours to be Christians. We bear the name. God loves me and sent his son to die for my sin. Me, Don Carson, the chief of sinners. Three score years and ten, give or take, this body will die. But one day, the voice of the Son of God will speak and say, Don Carson, rise! And I will have resurrection body akin to the Lord Jesus' resurrection body. I will be forever in the presence of the Holy One. The highest order of angels cannot dare look at him. They hide their faces with their wings as they cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But the text says that his people will gaze on his face. I'm going there. I rejoice because I carry the name. And if, and in consequence, that results in a little battering, all that is is proof that I carry the name. What does the text say? If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Martin Luther understood this. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. You see, there's a calculus in this. In the light of the truth of the gospel and all that it means, not only for me, but for my brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, and not only now, but for all eternity, it's a small calculus. 
Oh, the thought of losing my house or my 401k or my library or my health. It, it's, it's all pretty awful. It, it's pretty painful if I look at it just in of itself. If I start thinking how others are getting away scot-free and, and I can begin to complain with Habakkuk. It's not fair with David who's betrayed by his own familiar friend and all the rest. But rejoice. Because you bear the name. You're a Christian. The best is yet to come. Or in a more contemporary lyric, I will not boast in anything. No power, no strength, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. Number five, persecution should sometimes be seen as a step in the purification of Christians. Persecution should sometimes be seen as a step in the purification of Christians. Verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be? For those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now there is a sense, of course, in which this is true not only of the suffering that is due to persecution, but of all suffering. That is, suffering can be used by God to purify us. That's why, for example... In James' letter, chapter 1, we, do, we read these words. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, not because they're nice, but because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, because you so value maturity and you know that maturity comes about through perseverance and you know that perseverance comes about through steadfast faith and you know that that faith is strengthened by opposition and trial, therefore you can actually rejoice in the coming of the trial. Or again, verse 12 of the same chapter, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Do, do, do you see? Because you're, you're weighing things up with eternity's values in view. That changes all the calculus. It's true in so many ways. Fire so often is purifying, as in Malachi 3, for example. I mentioned that my wife is a cancer survivor. She's always been a compassionate person toward all kinds of hurting people. But this side of her cancer, she has a remarkable ministry amongst other women who have had breast cancer and have had double mastectomies and things of that sort. She's been there. She knows what they need physically. She knows what stores to go to, to buy caps for your head, to keep your head warm when all the cold air rushes in after your hair is gone. She knows what the side effects of most of the major drugs are. Oh, she's no oncologist. She's no expert. But she knows stuff that the oncologist will never know. She knows by experience. 
And with this, she has a Christian witness and a Christian voice for all kinds of people because, as the old song put it, he washed my eyes with tears that I might see. But the same is true in persecution, isn't it? Come on. Be honest with yourself now. Isn't it true sometimes when we indulge in fantasy conversations in our minds, we think of all the really quick-witted things we'd like to say that would cut opposing parties down to their ankles? We imagine ourselves in theological debates. And in these fantasy debates, who wins? Bet you it's not the other guy. Or maybe you've tried to bear testimony on the university campus and you just haven't had the intellectual wherewithal to answer it. You try to do a bit more digging and you fantasize about what you'd say the next time. You rerun conversations. And as you rerun the conversations in your mind, you think of all the things you could have said, all the things you should have said, all the things you would have said if you had thought of them fast enough, and you replay the whole thing. Who wins? And things become a kind of debate over who wins and who wins and who wins. Throw in some persecution to that, and it changes. You start thinking, How could I have answered in such a way as simultaneously to bear witness and to turn wrath away? It's no longer so much a matter of winning as a matter of being winsome. I suppose some people are so mature they begin that way. I didn't. I have to work hard at being winsome because I like to win. But persecution helps. One of the reasons why there are so many angry bloggers, including Christian bloggers who are angry, is because so many of them are young, untried, untested, and unpersecuted. They just sound so immature. No. Persecution, like other forms of suffering, should sometimes be seen as a step in the purification of Christians. We read... It is time for judgment to begin with God's household. That is, God is concerned to purify his house, the church of the living God. And one of the ways he does it is by exercising a certain kind of parental judgment. According to Hebrews 12, he does this because he is a knowing, wise father. It's good for us. And if it begins with us, 
What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That is, those who are doing the persecuting are not going to escape God's justice when you measure things over the long haul. On the last day, not only will justice be done, but justice will be seen to be done. If God exercises a purifying role in his judgment toward his own people now in this age because he wants a pure church, how will his judgment display itself against the persecutors of the church on the last day? They shall look on him whom they have pierced. And all the earth will mourn because of him. And lastly, persecution should always be seen in the framework of God's faithful and providential rule over Christians. I repeat, Persecution should always be seen in the framework of God's faithful and providential rule over Christians. Verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Suffering according to God's will might sound like an oxymoron, contradiction in terms. But you have to remember that God is sovereign. In this context, suffering according to his will means suffering in ways that are not defying him by being evil and earning the suffering. Suffering in line with his will. That is, you're suffering because you're a Christian. You're suffering because you're doing what is right. That's suffering according to God's will. And then you begin to face the fact that God has different providential purposes for his people. For example, in John 21... Peter is told by Christ, as Christ restores him to ministry again, feed my sheep. He is told by Christ by what manner of death he will glorify God. And eventually, he is crucified, almost certainly upside down, in Rome. But he sees John over his shoulder. What about this guy? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus basically tells him, Peter... It's none of your flipping business. If I want him to last until the second advent, that's, that's between him and me. It's got nothing to do with you. You follow me. So in Acts 12, James, the brother of John, is killed by the sword, by the petty king Herod. Peter is arrested by the same man, but escapes miraculously with angelic help. William Carey became a spectacularly fruitful and courageous pioneer missionary. His sister was paralyzed most of her life and stayed at home and prayed for him. Festo Kivengere, often called the Billy Graham of Africa, saw thousands converted, ultimately tens of thousands converted. Then when Idi Amin in Uganda came to power, he exercised more and more pressure on the Anglicans and their bishops. Kevin Getty had become a bishop by this time. Idi Amin summoned all the bishops to headquarters, released all of them except the archbishop, a man by the name of Jonani Luvum. He didn't come out. Four days later, the government announced that he had been killed in a road accident, but no body was ever produced. Everybody knew he'd been killed. One archbishop killed? 
Kivan Getty released. Festo wanted to go back and confront Idi Amin. There were 45,000 people that showed up at the funeral, although it was banned, showed up at the Anglican Cathedral in Kampala for the funeral. His own people wouldn't allow him. They took him bodily away, saying, we've lost one archbishop, we don't want to lose another one. And they smuggled him across the border into Rwanda. After Idi Amin was finished, he went back to his own country and his own people and served again until he died of cancer in 1988. One bishop killed. The other bishop survived and wrote a book called I love Idi Amin. We've got Trinity graduates, Egyptians, living and serving in Egypt. I try to write to some of them as discreetly as I can, encouraging them in their faith at a troubled moment in Egypt's history. Do you know what they write back and say? This is the best time of our lives. We're seeing more Egyptians come to Christ as more and more hate surfaces, as more and more resentment surfaces, as more and more violent surfaces. Young Egyptians are asking, there's got to be another way. What have you got to say? And we preach Christ and the gospel of peace and we've never seen so many converts. But meanwhile, brothers and sisters in Syria and Iraq under ISIS are being beheaded. Persecution should always be seen in the framework of God's faithful and providential rule over Christians. There are simply not mechanical formulas that tell you so much persecution means release, so much persecution means automatic conversions, so much persecution means revival. Some will be persecuted and some will be spectacularly released. What can I say? It's the same God, the same confession. And when the saints go marching in, God will sort out what rewards go to what person for what reason. And the blessing of God is poured out or withheld within his sovereign wisdom, his providential watch care, not only over individual martyrs and their families, but over the whole church of the living God. For we serve a master who has not only suffered and died on our behalf, but as the risen Lord says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we take up our cross daily and follow him. Let us pray. Merciful Heavenly Father, we do not want to descend to mere cliches as we think about these matters. We trust you in your wisdom and goodness and sovereignty and power. We thank you that you are unfailing in your sovereign providential goodness. We thank you for the privilege of taking up our cross and following King Jesus. 
We thank you that although his crosswork is in so many respects unique, he was wounded for our transgressions. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. He is our peace. Yet at the same time it is written, Christ died, leaving us an example that we should follow in his train. And we remember the words of the Master himself that we are to take up our cross daily and follow him. Give us grace, we pray, to see these things in their true dimensions, in the light of eternity, in the spectacular wonder and privilege of sins forgiven and the the power and anointing of the Spirit of God in our lives, such that we have a right calculus. And we see what a privilege it is to bear the name. Grant that should more difficulty come to us in this country, we will rejoice because we have been counted worthy to suffer for the name. And grant, Lord God, whether through persecution or through revival, there may come again such a bold and anointed declaration of the gospel in this country that there will be hundreds of thousands, millions of conversions beyond what we ask or think. We read of accounts of revival in times past. And we know we do not deserve such revival. We know how much of this heritage we have debased, how many times we ourselves have proven to be people of unclean lips living amongst a people of unclean lips. We know this and we are ashamed. But we beg of you, Lord God, while blessing others, do not pass us by. For Jesus' sake. Amen.